The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. The other day, I chatted with Lionel Barber, the former editor of the Financial Times, about his book, The Powerful and the Damned, Private Diaries in Turbulent Times. It's a fun read for those of us in financial journalism as he walks us through some of the big stories like Brexit and the European sovereign debt crisis that happened on his watch. I chatted with Lionel about some of these stories, including highlights of the FT's coverage, as well as some of what he describes as editorial blind spots along the way. We discussed some of the bold-faced names in finance and politics that he invariably tussled or cavorted with, sometimes in equal measure. And as you'll hear, he even once told Blackstone's founder, Steve Schwartzman, to off. It somehow managed to keep him as a good contact. There's a lesson in there for budding journalists. Lionel is now embarking on a bit of a portfolio career, including as an investor in the New European, a sort of anti-Brexit weekly magazine and website. Finally, I asked Lionel, who I first encountered at one of the crucial EU summits in the 1990s ahead of the creation of the single currency, for some guidance in running a newsroom. Give a listen. Greetings, Lionel. Great to see you in uh, now in civilian life. Are you, uh, where, where do I find you today? I'm in London, in oh. Southeast London at my home, where I used to commute to the FT every day yeah. in a, in, with a driver. That was my yeah. only luxury. Right, I, you write about that in your book, um, among other things. I'm, and you know, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've been breezily going through it because it's quite a fast read. Um, a lot of what you write about are, you know, sort of vignettes, extraordinary people that you've met, um, some of them that you've had bust-ups and dust-ups with, which is quite fun, too. Um, let's, I want to talk to you a, a, about some of the sort of parts of that book, but, I'm, you know, I, I'd really be interested to just know what you're, what you're up to these days. I mean, okay, like everybody else, you're sheltering from the, the pandemic, um, but, you, you know, I, knowing you uh, well enough, you're not someone who's just sitting around playing golf. You know, Rob, um, the good news is that there is life after the FT. Uh, I, I have a podcast too with, with LBC. They approached me shortly after I stepped down in January 2020. Um, I'm mentoring a couple of uh, younger uh, people who are less fortunate than I am, and I'm trying to help them with their business. And I'm just stepped down as chair of the Tate. Um, so I've got a bit more time. And I'm a trustee of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. So okay. I'm doing that. And then I'm um, just um, an investor in the new European newspaper. Yeah, I saw um, that. That was, a, that was a pretty interesting. Um, so well, I, I, I want to, actually, let's get your thoughts on that. I mean, you, you, do you see a sort of opportunity there that's digital, new business model, or is it just that you really like this concept of, a, of an editorial stance uh, that's embracing a new Europe as you've just exited? Uh, in Britain from the European Union? Actually, this is less about politics. Um, um, my slogan on Brexit is the war is over. This is not a mm. rejoiner effort. Uh, I'm not a remainer or a moaner. Uh, we have to think about the future of Britain and the relationship with Europe separately. I think in this instance, the New European was a pop-up newspaper after came up after the uh, referendum in 2016. And they've developed a, a an audience, a circulation of about 20,000. 
They make a small amount of money. And I think there's an opportunity as a niche publication offer, offer a sort of fairly solid loyal base um, to develop something and they don't really have a digital presence. So with some investment, could you um, make something of it? I think, I think they can, but obviously they've got to figure out what having um, championed the cause of remain and no Brexit, they're, they're now sort of liberated. So what do they do next? And that's a matter for the editor, Matt Kelly, and some of the investors, including me, and I'll give them, I'll be giving them advice. Mark Thompson of the BBC, ex-CEO of the New York Times has come in. So it's interesting. So are you going to do a lot of these kind of portfolio investments or is this kind of a one-off? Uh, uh, that sounds as though I've got money to burn, Rob. Um, that, that ain't the case. Um, this wasn't a large amount of money. It was, it, uh, I, no, I'm not, I'm not an investor type. I'd like to do just a portfolio with advice. So giving people advice, trying to help and drawing on my experience. You know, I was at the FT for 35 years, 14 as editor. We doubled the paying readership of the FT over the, my years as editor to more than a million. So I think I learned a few things with a team. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go, let's go to that a bit. I mean, the, the, the powerful and the damned. Um, yes, I, it's I, a bit pompous. Well, I'm just sort of, I'm trying to, you know, I'm about 60% of the way through and I will finish it. Um, uh, but it, I, I'm just trying to figure out who are the powerful and who are the damned. And, uh, and, and maybe you've got a list, but um, maybe it's worth going through some of the, some of the things in there. I, I thought, you know, you're reflecting on your 14 years as editor of the FT. Um, and I think it's, it's quite an, an honest reflection. Some of the, right from the beginning, you say, we missed the story about Brexit, for instance. Mm. Now, I mean, sort of thinking about the, the new European, maybe that's one way to rectify missing the story. I mean, how, what, I mean, what did you learn from that experience? I mean, about missing the story of Brexit, but, and, and then sort of corollary to that is sort of, we'll go to the Trump question. Yeah, well, we'll come to Trump in a minute. I, I, I thought it was honest if you're writing a diary, and I didn't, by the way, keep a contemporaneous diary. Not every day. I was too exhausted. I was reading 5,000 words a, a day trying to run 565 brilliant anarchists, better known as journalists. Um, you know, digital transformation, uh, the global financial crisis, all this was crowding in. But I did keep detailed notes um, of important meetings, particularly with world leaders or times when I knew it was very colorful and I wanted to keep a record of that so I could draw on it. Now, when it comes to, to a diary, I think it's important to, to be honest that obviously if you're a journalist, you, you make mistakes, you miss things. Uh, I think we got most things right, but when it comes to Brexit, we, um, like many people in Britain, assumed incorrectly that the majority of the population would make rational economic choices. They would look at Brexit and say, there's going to be economic damage, my livelihood will suffer, therefore I will vote remain. And of course that wasn't true because number one, it was about identity politics, not economics. And, and number two, David Cameron was a completely rubbish campaigner. And, and it was appalling and pretty well soon the FT, you know, I was aware this campaign was going terribly wrong, but yeah. we missed it. And I think Rob, the other point to make is we were a, 
a bit too metropolitan. We weren't in touch with what was going on outside London. And we rectified that. We made some appointments. We made changes in the coverage. But that was, I think, an important reason. We looked at people like Nigel Farage and said he's a swivel-eyed loon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some you, there are some glimpses of that. I, you, you sort of I think there's one part where maybe it was the head of the campaign for the conservatives talking about the, how well they were doing outside of London. And, That's right. And you guys were somewhat dismissive of that. And it's, it, 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 which, yeah. which I thought was because we remember you remember that night when all of a sudden um, certain parts of outside was it Sunderland or all these places come through and we're all watching these numbers going, wait, I mean, first I was watching that number going, where is that anyway? Why does that matter? Because London. But that been, I think that was the case even for people in London at the time or in the UK, just completely dismissed the hinterlands. Well, I, I think there's a really interesting story in the, in, the, in the diaries and my successor, Rula Khalaf, should take the credit for this because she had the idea of inviting four foreign correspondents from Europe to go to various parts of the UK and report back on the ground. And they all came back saying, it's leave. Mm. And even then, we didn't take that seriously enough. We, we didn't distinguish between the signal and the noise. Interesting. And I suppose it was the same problem that, okay, less, less your concern, you are London-based, but um, the media pretty much missed the Trump revolution in the same way, it seems. Yeah, I, I think we did a better job there. And certainly, I mean, I describe it. I was in New York at the time. I mean, as editor, I was on the move a lot because I, I thought that was what I should be doing doing um, in touch with, uh, you know, we had more than 100 foreign correspondents on the ground. I sort of saw it as my way of being liberated mm -hmm. from, you know, not just staring at a computer in my office. I like being reporter editor. And, you know, I, I, I was aware that Trump could win. And we did some pretty important reporting, you know, again, uh, not going with the New York East Coast consensus. Anybody who spent time in Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ken, you know, in Eastern Ohio, whatever, the, the, it was there. Um, so it wasn't a total shock. Brexit was a total shock. Yeah, well, and of course it came before the election. Um, yes. In the US. So there was a sort of, a, we, we all were kind of galvanized into thinking we can get this wrong. Um, and we certainly did in many respects. How did, I mean, post-Brexit, you know, post-Trump, how, how do you think this has shifted or changed the way we as journalists are functioning or need to function? Well, I, I, I think facts matter. This is really important um, that you don't allow journalists to, to lean in on opinion. You've got to say, don't accept conventionalism. Facts, stick to the facts. Um, second, I, I worry about the influence of social media where everything is speeded up. So people rush to judgment. I mean, I don't think I'm disclosing any national security secrets here, but in the FT, I remember after the election chairing our usual annual meeting and um, one journalist who shall remain nameless suggested as part of the American coverage that we should have a daily tweet deck analyzing Donald Trump's tweets. 
And I just said, we can't put it. That's a complete waste of time. I mean, you're just giving him space. You're playing into this. And of course, that was the, the, the you know, that was the risk that he was completely setting the news agenda. Now, in uh, the other point to make is, of course, that um, New York Times, Washington Post, to a degree, benefited by playing the anti-Trump card and writing a lot about him, but being the anti-Trump, being the sort of light in the day of darkness and benefited, their, their grew their subscriptions through that. I think for the FT, it was slightly different. We had to be take a more sophisticated approach. Uh, well, yeah. a different approach. Of course, now with Donald, it's fascinating to see the, how the news agenda has just shifted now that Donald Trump is no longer on Twitter or that, you know, that in it, to me that I just, I'm still, I can't, it's still a surprise to me to see how nobody's covering him because he no longer has the platform. Now, it's actually quite refreshing. So we're focusing on things like, I don't know, these weird GameStop stories. I mean, become national, those become national stories, not just FT, breaking views, Reuters type stories. Those are, everyone's covering them as sort of as digital stories, if you will. But um, I mean, I, I suppose, what's your, I guess, what's your view about how the, the, the Biden era, I mean, you, you've been a keen observer of Washington politics. You were there yeah. a long time. Um, you know, how do you think this thing is going to, move forward from here. I, I want to say one other thing about Trump because it, and co Trump coverage. I kept saying that for us, we had to always be looking at to what degree might he have got some things right. So don't get blinded by the appalling character of the man. I mean, I do describe in the book, interviewing him in the Oval Office behind the Resolute Desk and thinking I was talking to Tony Soprano. Um, on the Potomac. I mean, it, it really was like that. It was it was an unbelievable scene. But there were some things that he's clearly had a, a lasting effect. And one of them is st stimulating the debate about America's relationship with China. And so there's something of a legacy. And that, that brings me to, to Biden. And Biden, I don't think, is a restoration. I don't think you can go back, even though he's appointed a number of people who were from the Obama team, like Jake Sullivan, yeah. you know, Janet Yellen. It, you can't go back because certain things have happened under Trump, which we, we cannot be overturned. Um, I think that one of the big differences, though, will be that he will not be attacking allies. He will not go for such severe bilateralism. And Biden understands the value of alliances. And lastly, and it's funny, you could argue that Biden will has got to play America first. It's all about restoration of strength at home before you have the big active foreign policy abroad. You can't, in other words, well, you will have a foreign, obviously you have a foreign policy, but, you know, it will be measured, the effectiveness by the strength at home. And my goodness, does he need to rebuild? And I'm reminded of, you know, Jim Baker's advice to Ronald Reagan in 81 was, you know, Mr. President, you have three priorities, the economy, the economy, the economy. Well, for Biden, it's COVID, COVID, COVID. That's what it is. Yeah. And I, I, I suppose what changes is the tone with... Oh, completely. And that kind of thing. And that certainly, um, that, that could lead to new breakthroughs. But as you say, with China, I, it's hard to imagine that anything materially changes between the US and China as a result of 
I mean, that train has left. It's on the stage. train has left, and there's a new consensus a, yeah. around business, labor, politics that you know China presents a very serious challenge across the board. And it's not about just tariffs. This is about intellectual property, spying, military projection in the South China Sea, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Now, let's turn to Europe a bit. I mean, you are a German speaker and, uh, and uh, spent a lot of time. I think the first time I actually came across you, Lionel, was at a, one of these summits when they were trying to create the euro in the 90s. And I seem to remember you got into a bit of a bust up with some guy banged into you with a camera. And you and you guys were in the corner. There was a little scuffle. I said, "What's going on there?" And said, "Someone said, oh, that's Lionel Barber.' And some guy just bumped into him with a Night Ritter camera or something." And I was like, "Oh, okay, I'll remember this guy." Um, <laughs> but um, I think I remember that. I think it yeah. was in Holland, Nordvik, Nordvik, Nordvik. Yeah, I remember. I felt very ashamed of myself afterwards. I don't think so. I mean, when someone comes in and muscles around with those cameras, they deserve to be pushed back. But um, but so I mean, sort of we. You, you see that Angela Merkel era is ending. Mm-hmm. You have Macron, uh, possibly, I, mean, I assume he's gonna run for another term. You have, in fact, you and I are speaking today on the day that the uh, president of Italy is tapping uh, Mario Draghi, who makes a few uh, uh, appearances in your book. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your sense of the prospect for the sort of European experiment or Hamiltonian moment even with the um, mutualization of debt, for the recovery fund, what, what, how do you see things developing? Well, I would start by saying that three really seminal things happened last year, in the last year. One is the, um, if you, your phrase, the Hamiltonian moment, the, the mutualization of debt. This was a German red line. The fact they got an agreement on a recovery fund, huge, nearly 2 trillion euros with common borrowing. That's a big deal. It's yeah. not quite um, 1787, you know, it's, it's, but it's, it's very important. Um, second, uh, the comprehensive investment agreement with China concluded uh, against the Biden administration's wishes. America, uh, Europe went ahead. This, this sense that Europe wants to avoid being sandwiched between uh, America and China wants to be a strategic player. Um, I think it's hedging its bets, um, leans towards America, but hedging its bets because of the economic exposures. That's a big deal. And the third is obviously Brexit, because taking Britain out of Europe changes the dynamics and changes the balance of power, makes, to my mind, France and Germany more more powerful. Um, it will change its complexion over time because Britain has been voice of common sense open trade, liberal, um, fiscally um, responsible on budgets, etc. Now, um, the Merkel era, the Merkel era was about step by step, Not, don't do anything that could be too, um, too bold. Um, so d- not quite the um, speed of the slowest boat in the convoy, but a bit. No, in other words, giant leap towards greater integration, which always the British feared. It's one of the reasons why they went for Brexit. And then they, they feared it, but then thought the Germans would bail them out. Merkel would bail them out. Didn't. Mm. Um, now, I, I think the choice of Laschet, 
Armin Laschet as the German center-right CDU leader is a message of steady as she goes. Again, in the, in the, in the book, I say the center held after the Brexit and Trump, the center held in Europe, Macron, Merkel, reduced majority. So I say Europe sort of, it, it doesn't break up, it carries on in incremental steps. And Macron will definitely uh, run for a second term. Uh, I, I, the populism, to my mind, it, it's, it peaked. I don't think it's gone away. Um, Macron, of course, is a bit Napoleon, a bit too arrogant, aloof. Um, they all kind of get like that as president, don't they? I mean, I describe it with Sarkozy, who was quite extraordinary in his stacked shoes. Um, yeah, you had, some I, nice, you had some nice digs at Sarkozy in the book. Yeah. <laughs> but with Macron, I mean, as you say that um, the populism may or we don't quite have what we had with the Gilets jaunes, but um, I wonder if lockdowns and uh, restrictions aren't going to bring us back into some more, another sort of version of that populist response. Yeah, yeah there is a definite risk. Um, people obviously... Um, very, very frustrated. You've seen what's happening in the Netherlands at the moment. <clears throat> um, Germany, there have been some protests too. Uh, to my mind, the, the, the big question is, to what degree will inequality increase, paradoxically, as a result of this COVID? You're certainly seeing it in Britain with schools shut down. You can see People have done well in the stock market. We can talk a bit about that. I mean, you follow that, Rob. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think that this QE experiment and just flooding the market with easy money, it sort of sa it saved the financial system in 2008, was probably necessary as well to stop a giant depression in 2020. But there are unintended consequences. And, you know, Mario Draghi and I talked about this um, you know, the, he, he wanted governments to take more responsibility on the fiscal side and that it shouldn't have been all down to monetary policy. But there are perverse consequences here. And I yeah. think that's something to watch. Can I, let, let me ask you a little bit about media again. You were, you were there during the um, sale by Pearson of the Financial Times to Nikkei. Okay. Um, as you mentioned before, you were you were very focused and quite successful at driving digital subscriptions. Mm. What, I mean, print is gonna at some point in our lifetime, you know, in the next five to 10 years, I imagine become something of an anachronism. What, what is your sense of, what are the models that work in media today? Well, first of all, you have to have um, a speciality you, and you can define that as core areas where you know that you're the best. And that was the thing that I started with at the FT was, okay, well, we're not Britain's business newspaper, which is what the slogan was when I took over in 05. That was way too narrow and it, it didn't play to our strengths. If you've got 100 foreign correspondents, then you've got a global footprint and that, that's comparative advantage. The second is you, you need to have uh, what I called mini brands or maxi brands. And those are the great commentators, the people who you just have to read to understand um, or, or you just get so much intellectual enjoyment from. And obviously, 
you know, there the, are the, the roster at the FT, Martin Wolf's probably at the top of the mountain. And, you know, Gillian Tett was another enormous figure in the global financial crisis because she understood what CDOs were and leverage and wrote about it. I mean, you know, she loved geeks, uh, as she writes. And so that was another building block that you had voiced these brands within the overall FT brand. Um, I think central banking was another point that we had access. And I write, the book is a lot about access because I meet a lot of very powerful people. So I think the FT... For the FT, that was very important. And people knew, therefore, that what we were writing about macroeconomics, we could, uh, we could um, uh, succeed. Now, um, for others, I think it's obviously hard within the general news market. But if, if I was sort of looking around, I would say, if I would, uh, you know, just take Boston, for example, you'd say, well, look, it's got one of the great university campuses, um, medical research and everything. Make that part of what you're doing so that you can then build these constituencies who are crucially prepared to pay money. Right. And that was, I think, just one last point, Rob. I mean, you, you at Breaking Views, obviously, you, you developed a subscription model. It was amazing to me how late, particularly in America, people came to the understanding that you could not produce uh, a sustainable business proposition without subscriptions and paying for content. The advertising model of digital advertising was never gonna work, not least because the likes of Facebook and Google had hoovered it all up. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think it's, you, have to, you have to have value proposition and you have to ask people to pay for it. Yes. And, and that's always been, I mean, I, you've always been quite, uh, the FT has always been quite aware of that um, and and I, I imagine that's that's actually good advice to know as you say to have an area of expertise and to exploit it uh, aggressively um, what can I ask you about uh, your just sort of your tips look from one editor to another um, uh, I only see 40 people on my in my team you had you know as you say what did you say 550 um, cats to herd but um, what a, Throughout the book, you give some of your ideas on, on and I, I sort of liked a few of them. One was walk the floor, uh, hire an enforcer, don't seek consensus, which I think you said was a, a Tony Blair had, had actually given you that that advice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, focus on on uh, well, inculcate a desire for curiosity, have impact. Just give give us give me yours the, the Lionel Barber, uh, you know, editor's view. Well, I did watch Ben Bradley in action at the Washington Post in 1985. And, you know, the way he walked the floor was something else. But he was always walking the floor, not just to flirt with people, because he did that and put his feet on the desk, but also to, he was teasing out what people were up to and what stories were around. So he was displaying curiosity. And I think that's an incredible the important uh, ingredient and quality in journalists. I often say to younger journalists, the day you become cynical or that I would erupt theatrically at least once a week, if we're going around the news list and somebody would say, well, it's a bit quiet today. And I just go, (laughs) it's never quiet. It's never quiet. Or this, we've kind of done this. No, you haven't because you haven't worked hard enough to think about 
Crucially, what is the story behind the story? I think the other very important point, and again, Rob, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, is recruiting and retaining is probably one of the most important things that an editor can do. So spotting talent. And also, by the way, that means picking people who are difficult. Journalists are not supposed to be, you know, necessarily polite. They're a bit neurotic. They can be a bit ornery, all sorts of things. But your job as an editor is to manage that and get the most out of them. And then crucially, you understand the insecurities. So you understand if somebody's not performing, there may be lots of reasons. There may be some way of you encouraging them rather than bollocking them. That's a technical term. Um, you know, so that you're going to get the most out of them. And I think the last, you know, I always had a sort of secret list uh, in the one drawer of the people I'd never lose. And there's no way. And I was, they were also younger people. So I was thinking of their career, you know, five, seven years on. Oh, yeah. And the other thing, if you're the editor, you're, you're a bit like an enlightened despot. But most enlightened despots, if they're smart, they will get strong people around them. I learned that from Jim Baker at the State Department. He had really, really top people. And they could advise him. He'd listen. Of course, the buck stops with you. But what you want is a really good team. And at the FT, you know, that team is still intact. Yeah. Yeah. The people have moved around a bit, but it's still intact. Yeah, I think that is, that, that's true. When you see it from the outside, it looks that way for sure. Um, let's just do a quick uh, lightning round of some of the vignettes or anecdotes, shall we? Um, Putin playing piano. Extraordinary dinner at the Russian embassy. Uh, we'd had uh, vodka and he talked and asked questions of this small group. Um, at the Russian embassy. And then suddenly he stood up and said, well, it's over. Oh yes, I'd like to play piano. And he played chopsticks, uh, played Moscow, ding, 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 and St. Petersburg, diddling, ding. And then we had to clap. It was um, an extraordinary moment. What, what was he, was he's, is he just playing people all the time? I think he's playing people all the time. I think there was also this sense of, I do have a cultured soft streak in me, really even though I've got the ICIs. <laughs> Philip Green. Oh, well, I mean, uh, I won't try and do the accent. Well, I mean, <laughs> he, try, go ahead. he was such a thug. I mean, he would always, his, his language was appalling. Uh, he phoned me up a couple of times and it would always degenerate into st stair words. And at one point, I then said, well, you, you never come and see me. And he said, yes, I will. I'll come with you. I'll, I'll bring a cake. And then I said, and he said, what kind of cake? And I didn't know whether he was serious. So I said an almond cake. And next following week, he, he turned up with an almond cake in the you, walking through the newsroom. There was no poison in it. <laughs> no. <I don't. laughs> um, Steve Schwartzman. Uh, well, uh, he and I go back. I mean, we, we, we had a sort of occasionally testy relationship and um but he was also incredibly well informed particularly about china and you know i'd, I'd talked to him but we had a bit of a dispute with blackstone about whether they were paying for subscriptions so um there was a bit of a showdown in davos where uh, an expletive was exchanged but he took it in great 
grace and the matter was Oh, exchange. Wait, Lionel, you told him. <laughs> yeah, but I think... you, is, I think, if I read the book, I remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I think your memory is correct. But he took it in great grace and, you know, we're still friends. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's been a, a bit of a, a quite an important um, source of insight, particularly on China. And Boris Johnson? Well, Johnson um, is ill-disciplined both in his public and private life, but uh, a very good friend, Georgette Mosbacher, asked me to put together a dinner party. So I arranged a dinner at Scott's with Boris Johnson and his wife and Georgette Mosbacher. And I turned up at the restaurant and said, please, can, I, can you take me to Boris's table? And they took me and I turned up at the table and it was Boris Becker not <laughs> Boris Johnson. <laughs> so you got the tennis player rather than the, uh, yes. the future prime minister. Yes. And he and I, we've had a bit of a testy relationship as well because we obviously didn't agree on Brexit. Yeah, sure. Well, good, Lionel. Uh, it's great talking to you. Yeah, I loved it, Rob. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to finish the, the, the last 20, 30% of the book, uh, actually. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything. Thank you, Rob. It's been a real pleasure to be on the podcast. Good luck with you too. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner in New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter at Breaking Views and at Rob Wancox. Thank you.